0: From the first moment humanity switched from a nomadic group to one that preferred to settle in certain areas, they have been building. Sites of prehistoric construction have been uncovered all over the planet by archaeologists, some dating as far back as 100,000 years. Humans are one of very few beings on the planet that build permanent structures for themselves. Beavers, cathedral termites, sociable weaver birds, the list is not particularly long. But no matter how impressive those in the animal kingdom may be at architecture, they will never match the creativity and ingenuity of human design. From the ancient sites whose purpose has long since been forgotten to time and the people around it, to newer buildings designed by and for a circus magnate, there's no end to the fascinating history behind human architecture. I'd like to discuss a few of the more interesting sites that I have discovered during my research for this show. Many of these places are ones that I've been wanting to discuss for a while, but I couldn't justify an entire episode for something with so little information available. So, I've combined them all into a medley of several incredible buildings throughout time, all around the earth. Frank Geary once said, Architecture should speak of its time and place, but yearn for timelessness. I'm Aidan Maine. welcome to Haunting Historia. Nestled between Vietnam and Thailand sits the country of Cambodia. With its long and storied past, the history of this nation spans centuries. In the 9th century, a dynasty called the Khmer Empire rose to power, and it spanned through until the 15th century. Their capital of Angkor was a magnificent metropolis and massively wealthy. But Angkor appears after decades of excavation to have only been the tip of the iceberg for Cambodia and the Khmer Empire. 50 or so miles east of the capital and resting in the middle of a cozy little trade route lies a vast settlement known as Preah Khan of Kompong Sve. Archaeologists have determined that the site was built sometime in the 11th century and they believe they have determined its original purpose. Several temples are enclosed inside of four concentric walls that span roughly five square kilometers. It is thought that the city was an important place for Buddhist pilgrimage, as evidenced by the introduction of Buddhism to Cambodia in the same century as Priyakan was established. What makes this marvel of architecture so interesting is that it beguiles and astounds people to this day. Mitch Hendrickson, an archaeologist at the University of Illinois, said, It is the single largest construction ever built by the Khmer, even bigger than the complex of Angkor Thom inside Angkor itself. In the 1970s and 80s, thieves stole untold artifacts and reliefs from the site, making it the most looted archaeological place in Cambodia. Despite this, there was enough left for those who studied the city and its history to determine that it was as wealthy, if not more so, than the capital of Angkor. Though there has been some debate regarding how a religious site accrued such vast wealth, many suggested that the city was a center for iron production, using slag piles as their evidence saying that these were likely places for furnaces. However, recent sample dating indicates that any smelting done at the site didn't take place until the 15th century. Rather, the city was more likely a through point between Angkor and Phnom Dek, wherein lies Cambodia's largest iron oxide deposit. Priya Khan served as a prominent stock in the process of transporting the iron oxide to the capital for production into iron. Today, its grandeur may have faded, but it has stood through the ages well enough to be worth seeing, if you happen to be in Cambodia with four hours to spare there and back in a four-wheel drive vehicle. thousand feet above sea level, there is a lake in southern Siberia. It is called Terakol, and in the middle of the lake is an island, the site of a complex of buildings that has been the center of a mystery since the end of the 1800s. Poor Bajin is an area that measures in at 700 feet by 530 feet. A not excessively large area, the site couldn't even be considered a city. In fact, what it was supposed to be is the exact cause for debate among historians and archaeologists for decades. Most believe the site to be that of a grand palace built for the ruler of the Uyghur Khaganate that held power over the area of Siberia around 750 AD. But the most fascinating part of this mystery came when researchers found that whatever the building had been intended for it never got the chance to fulfill its purpose. The building complex was never lived in or even used from what the archaeologists could tell from their research. Their biggest problem in solving this mystery was the precision, or lack thereof, of carbon dating. Margo of the University of Groningen, sums it up by saying, You always end up with a range, usually a few decades. For some periods or moments this may not matter much. But for poor Bajin, you really do want to know when, exactly, it was built. Recent advancements in tree ring dating held the answer. A Japanese scientist in 2012, Husa Miyaki found spikes in the carbon-14 of a tree whose age had already been definitively calculated. These spikes eventually went on to be called Miyake events, and they were just the answer needed at poor Bajin. By finding a Miyake event in the wooden beams of one of the buildings, they were able to pinpoint the exact year that the tree would have been cut down, and thus, when the site was in the middle of construction. They concluded that it had been built in 777 AD, and this discovery broke the dam on all the questions about the site. The Uyghur Khan, they originally thought commissioned the space, had a son, Tengri Bugu Khan. When that son took over the Khaganate at some point before construction, he changed the official religion. The Khaganate had been firmly established under Tengrism, which is a shamanistic tradition. But under Tengri Bogu Khan, the new religion was that of Manichaeism, a Gnostic faith that once rivaled Christianity before the spread of Islam. It could now be determined that the Khan constructed poor Bajin as a Manichaean monastery, not a grand palace. However, his Khaganate was not happy about the change in religion. And due to an anti-Manichaean uprising, he was killed in 779, before the monastery could be completed and occupied. With the death of Tengri Bogu Khan and the return to Tengrism, poor Bajin was abandoned until centuries later. Long enough for the truth behind its origins to die, just as the man who commissioned it. In 2011. Something started in Canada that rocked most of its citizens to their core. There has been a widespread belief that since the different provinces became united under one parliament, the capital has always been firmly settled in Ottawa. For a short time in the 1830s and 1840s, the Canadian government sat in Montreal. Canada was still under British rule during this time and it had been split into the more English-loyal Upper Canada and the Francophone Lower Canada. However, the rebellions of 1837 and 1838 convinced the Crown of England that it would be better to govern the colonies under a single banner using a single parliament. In 1840, that merger created the province of Canada, otherwise referred to as United Canada. They first tried to establish a government building in the town of Kingston. But after three short years, the politicians agreed that the town was too small to provide for their needs of governing the province. Thus, they decided to move to the largest city in the colonies at the time, Montreal. The 1840s were not a happy time in United Canada. They had just established their capital city but the majority of the decisions were still being made over 3,000 miles away by Queen Victoria. Meanwhile, a little closer to home, a small group of British Loyalist Canadians heavily influenced the policies. Now that Upper and Lower Canada had united, the French Canadians of the Lower Province demanded to have a bigger say in the running of the government. Likewise, Anglophone Canadians who were more working and middle class wanted to fight for improved representation as well. It boiled down to a very similar powder cake which led to the American Revolution. A small group of individuals who had political power and allied with a ruling force an ocean away versus a group of people who had little to no representation fiercely motivated to do something about it. Tensions grew between the British loyalists and those working towards Canadian autonomy, until 1848. That was when the Reform Party gained control of the government over the more conservative Tory party. A slew of new policies began flooding Parliament, including a bill in 1849 which promised to pay indemnities to the victims of the rebellions of 1837 to 1838. The Tories despised this new direction that the government was undergoing. They believed that those who stood to benefit from the proposed bill were traitors to the Crown, and they were not going to stand idly by. They formed a protest of the bill outside the Parliamentary Building in Montreal on the evening of April 25, 1849. Tempers flared, egged on by the protest, until it exploded into a full-blown riot. The mob stormed the building during a meeting of the Parliament and began a disastrous assault on the building itself. Eyewitness accounts that have survived from the catastrophe claim that men with torches intentionally set fire to it at all four of its corners, ultimately destroying the entire thing. The incident has largely been hushed up as an embarrassing moment in Canada's history. And for over a century later, It was forgotten, like a particularly shameful Thanksgiving story. But what's fascinating about the whole thing was that it was rediscovered thanks to how the building collapsed during that fateful fire. The building was originally called St. Anne's Market, inspired by the Quincy Market in Boston. It had been built 340 feet long with two floors and an underground sewer. The top floor served as an exhibition and concert space, while the bottom floor was for butchers, fishmongers, and other vendors. The space beneath the building was a massive collector sewer that remained in service until the late 1900s. When the building collapsed due to the fire, the two floors fell down into the sewer and the riverbed beneath it. This completely sealed the rubble in a wet, oxygen-free area that made everything well preserved. So preserved in fact that everyone forgot it was there when the capital moved to Ottawa. The ground was eventually paved and turned into a parking lot doing surprisingly little construction damage to the destruction it covered. It was only rediscovered when the sewer was decommissioned and urban developers planned to build on the site. Since then over 300,000 artifacts from the old parliament building have been recovered. There are so many buildings throughout history and all over the world that could be included in this episode. To even try would make its length unbearable to record, let alone listen to. But I wanted to include at least one place that still stands today. In fact, thanks to recent restoration, it has now been returned to its original glory. Stay tuned after the break to hear all about it. This episode of Haunting Historia was written and produced by me, Aidan Mayne, with research assistance by Marie Gervais, and music by John Bjork. It should be no surprise at this point to know that I have a passion for history. There's just too much of our past that we still don't know, and too much of what we do know has a tendency to get shoved under the metaphorical rug, as in the case of the Montreal Parliament building. But every day, New advances in archaeological techniques allow us to put the pieces together and tell the stories that haven't seen the light in a long time. That's why this podcast exists, to tell the stories that don't get told. If you have a story you'd like to be told, reach out via email using stories at hauntinghistoria.com or through the contact form at hauntinghistoria.com. When Mabel Burton got married in 1905, she could hardly know what to expect of her new life. A farm girl from Ohio, she wed John Ringling of the Ringling Brothers' World's Greatest Shows. John then whisked her off to Europe for the honeymoon. It was here that she fell in love with Venice, and Venetian architecture specifically. She took picture after picture. Mission sketches, and basically devoured every example she could get her hands on, stuffing it all into an oilcloth briefcase that never left her side. When the newlyweds returned to the States, she immediately began planning, and though it would take until 1924 to begin construction, she never lost sight of her dream home. The estate, built in Sarasota, Florida, was called Ka Design, or House of John, in the Venetian dialect, and in honor of her circus magnate of a husband. Mabel took inspiration from Venice in general, but she specifically modeled Ka di Zan after the Doge's Palace, Ka di Oro, and the Grunwald Hotel. For a time after it was completed, the pair threw wild, Gatsby-like parties in the villa, with bands serenading them from yachts in the Sarasota Bay, But after Mabel's death in 1929, John remarried. The Great Depression, coupled with the new Mrs. Ringling's love of spending, led to the near-bankruptcy of the estate. At one point, John had little more than $311 in his account. In order to save his first wife's dream home from the creditors, Ringling bequeathed the property to the state of Florida. For decades, The home fell to the ruin of time, until two very important events occurred that would turn Dizan's fortunes around. The house had been rented out as a party location for years, but in 1998, it became the film location and backdrop for that year's adaptation of Great Expectations. The second was that the house was featured on an episode of A&E's America's Castles. Suddenly, the public eye was once again on Ka Dizan. The state of Florida gave ownership over to Florida State University, who provided more than $40 million in renovations, turning it into the John and Mabel Ringling Museum. Now, tourists can visit the estate and see the Venetian-inspired home in all its glory, as if it had just been built in the last decade. If you enjoyed this episode of Haunting Historia, then I invite you to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Haunting Historia is more than just a podcast about things that happened in history, it's a journey into the parts of the past that get overlooked, with real lessons that can be applied to our lives today. The more people who listen, the more I can keep bringing new and interesting tales every single week. So share. Leave a review, get the word out, and I'll be back next week with the next haunting piece of the past. A river cuts through a rock, not because of its power, but its persistence. Unknown.